What is good to find dolls? All right, so I told you all that um, I wanted to start listening a little bit more to Previn Carrion. And so it looks like he's um, going to have an interview here with this woman. It is 30 minutes long, and I like to keep my videos to 30 minutes. So maybe what I'll do is we'll listen to it here, and then I'll do my reaction on a second 30-minute um, thing. So let's go. It's called Racism, the Psychology of Group Hate. Let's see. Let's see what he has to say about it. Podcast and YouTube broadcasting channel for mental health issues. We want to address mental pain and emotional suffering by bringing you information that can alleviate your distress. And you may make some important mental shifts that bring back your light, your love, your hope. Hmm. Please use the contact us button on our website know that today racism is a real issue it's hostile divisive and has resulted in huge turbulence in society we've seen large-scale movements such as black lives matter in the us and the uk but this has been met with an opposite rise in nationalist aggression and populist abuse towards different races no society seems to have solved the problem of racial hate. So what are the causes of racism in our minds? Is it purely social, economic or historic? Or could it be psychological? Can there ever be an end to it? And how effective are our ways to combat it? Well, here to help us think about some of these issues is the co-founder of In These Times, Previn Karyan. Now then, Previn, uh, perhaps we could just explain what racism is and why we have it. Gosh, that's quite a starting question. <laughs> um, I think racism has been misdiagnosed uh, for centuries, if not that. And so just so you have an idea, he's a psychotherapist. Real, real quick, um, I was listening to him interview with, with someone else and... Um, he goes for years, like it took him about 25 years of just listening and learning. And so it's really good to be able to hear his mind. Because usually behind the scenes, they don't, people that work in his capacity, that you don't, they're not very vocal. So he's a psychotherapist. And I think he is out in the UK. That's why he has like that, that little bit of an accent. And she does too. All right. Thousands of years as something to do with different cultures, something to do with different histories, uh, something that can be put right by the law, and something that can be broken through by education. Hmm. What we know is that all of these things have failed, hmm. and it appears they haven't even scratched the surface of the problem, what is racism? Um, what we're trying to do here to end these times is to engage psychologically with social issues. And it is far better to think of racism as a mental disorder. Woo. Okay, because it is based on extreme hate. It's not a difference. It's extreme hate. It's extreme anger. And it results and erupts in violence. Surely that is, if not a criminal disorder it does indicate a mental disorder. And the trouble with that is that there is no drug, there is no cure for racism, and so it doesn't appear in the DSM-5 or in psychiatrist diagnosis. Hmm. But it is clearly a disordered and very weird state of mind 
that the human species seems to act out on each other. So we have to start thinking about racism psychologically and get away from all of the, the failed ways of looking at racism, which have actually got us nowhere. And that's factual. Well, we'll, hmm. we'll come to, I mean, some of the hot potatoes are sports, of course. I mean, there are so many issues which are linked to racism. But the one thing that people try and do is blame our history or blame people who featured in our history. Like, I know she did not say we try to blame history. <laughs> I want to hear what he's going to say about this. You know, I just did a... um. Something titled, The Holocaust Did Not Exist Because I Didn't Experience It or My Family Didn't Experience It. But it, it actually, I go way more below the surface. I use it as a, something thought provocative, but it's like trying to explain or use our history as an excuse. Is that, is that what she said? And again, just kind of just so out of touch. We'll come to, oh. I mean, some of the hot potatoes are sports, of course. I mean, there are so many issues which are linked to racism, but... The one thing that people try and do is blame our history or blame people who featured in our history, like in colonial history. So mm. they love nothing better than in the case of, you know, somebody like Clive of India and say, well, he was a terrible villain and he had slavery and he was an awful man or Cecil Rhodes in South Africa, who actually, do I dare say it, actually did a few quite good things for the countries. Wow. Wow. Oh my God, the look on his face is entirely appropriate, y'all. It's at the four minute and eight second mark. The look on his face is entirely appropriate because this is this is how we end up with that rhetoric that Christopher Columbus was like, you know, this man to be worshipped when he was out here handing out infested blankets and being a complete terrorist, human, you know, and just even when you think about how we view human trafficking now versus like with slavery, it was just human trafficking on a whole other level. I mean, to the point where they were trafficking men, women, and children, everybody was catching hell. The look on his face is entirely, oh my God, so satisfyingly appropriate. Yeah, I think that there are several problems psychologically that come out in what you're saying. So one of the problems is that... Do you notice how he was so... Oh my gosh, y'all. Will I ever be able to just... If you look at body language, is there, but he was so... <laughs> God bless him, like, so professional with this. Actually, do I dare say it, actually did a few quite good things for the countries. Yeah, I think that there are several problems psychologically that come out in what you're saying. So one of the problems is that there was a huge amount of really bizarre, unnecessary violence and brutal exploitation from white people towards other countries. And that is a historical fact, which has got turned into an issue of racism. Right, because it was a historical fact. And she's trying to make it seem like, oh, we try to blame certain people or parts of history. No, it's historical. And again, this is why, you know, I, when I talked about earlier, um, when I was listening to the debate, 
this woman doesn't have anything in her lineage that would let her deal with what it meant to have her mom or her like her grandma or great grandmother or anybody in her lineage trafficked or R word or enslaved or have the family disconnected and broken apart. You know what I'm saying? So and so it that's an example of invalidating what actually happened. And it makes her seem so um one of the words I, I thought I wanted to use for the last podcast was like there's a difference between myopic and um what's the other but myopic is like where you're so narrow minded if I'm not mistaken. I don't want to spend too much I know there's a difference in myopic and let me just type it in real quick. Myopic and I am hungry. I have leftover Indian food. I can go snack on it. Yeah, myopic is short-sighted, nearsighted, blind as a bat, blind AF, um, lacking imagination, foresight, or intellectual insight. I would say she is myopic in the ten- sense that she has lacks intellectual insight on it. So let's keep going. Let's see what else he has to say here. And what happens with racism is that it gets stuck in this colonial history. So the term for that is colonial. And anything to do with a colonial history Hmm. is now vilified and Hmm. attacked as racist or racism. Now, the problem with positioning racism in history is that all it results in is shaming white people. Hmm. And guess what, folks? They're not going to listen, okay? They're going to get defensive they're going to feel angry, even if what you're saying is true and right. And he's true. He's right. He's right. So I'm listening. I'm listening, Previn, right? Um, you know what? This is going to be a little bit longer than 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 um, what it is. But I was listening to the... He was getting interviewed. And if you know, you know. I'm, I'm trying to be as respectful as possible. But he was being interviewed. And so the, the caller is called in. And this woman talks to this world-renowned, like psychotherapist and she's like prev that i'm like prev and speaking of white people this is stuff white people do i remember my mom told me because my name can be shortened and i stay stay having to tell people i prefer to be called by my full name or you're gonna call me this right um and stuff and sometimes like people will do it with me too as soon as they meet me and i'll say my name is mm-mm-mm they will say, okay, mm. and it's like, no, I didn't give you permission for that. I don't like that name. I I've, I remember one time I was at a, um, so, but in either event, <laughs> sidetrack, because I was like, where are we going with this? And I am short on time. She was just like, yeah, Prev, um, whatever, what have you. But this is true. I think that that is a valid point that. I can understand that if I'm bringing it up, it makes you defensive and you see a lot of that happening, you know. Um, and then you get into this like, whole, oh, well, I'm not the one who enslaved you. I wasn't alive when it happened. I didn't do it to you. And so then now you're invalidating this person's um, history and stuff. They are not going to hear the issue of race. So you cannot tackle race through history because all you end up with is white shaming and white shaming is going to produce the opposite reaction and that's what we've seen in all of this nationalist and populist aggression and all that mobilization of hate and anger towards other minorities 
what we've seen is that it doesn't work to go on about histories. You are actually generating, psychologically, you will guaranteed generate the opposite effect of nationalist fascism. Yes, well, people feel a lot better if they go and pull down a statue, you know. It does wonders for their hate. Well, it may do wonders for their hate. Okay, okay, wait. I feel like she's being intentionally dense or obtuse. At this point, she's like, it makes people feel better. If they pull down a statue, ma'am, this was recorded a year ago. I Obviously, I'm not too fond of her, but let's push through, y'all. Let's keep going. The issue of racism is stuck somewhere really complex. And that is the fact that all races hate each other. Okay, so you have even within, for example, the black communities where different groups of black <laughs> people can hate other black people. Oh, yeah. Tribal. Yeah. Mm. Exactly that. You have uh, racism within white-skinned people. Yes. So Did she say Bible? This woman is a whole entire fucking troll, y'all. She's a troll. Oh, my God people can hate other black people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Viable. Mm. Exactly that. You have... I think she said viable. Racism within white-skinned people. Yes. Okay, you can have... Bosnian, Serbs, yep. Exactly that. We've seen it in Europe. Yep. Um, we've seen it in this country with a hatred of Irish people that we had to kind of get over. Uh, then it became the Pakistanis and the Indians who were being imported to solve the labour shortage in the 60s, and then it amazingly became the Poles and the EU. So you can clearly see from this, it's not really about skin colour. Racism can't be located there. You're failing entirely to understand the problem if you all you go on about are statues and what's happened in history. Oh, he is coming for her edges, y'all. He is, oh my gosh. He's good. Um... I'm I'm stunned, but I feel like um, so he's and he brings a good point because I think you know this is so in, important for me because I know I talk a lot about like what happens in the black community, but I'm ready to kind of expand and become more cultured and so you see that same phenomena in other cultures where, as he was talking about it, it made so much sense because like even when you look at like in the Indian culture they have a caste system um i know like in the asian culture they have certain ways of identifying each other too and definitely in the black community we have that um in the white community you do have classism where it's kind of like uh what what was i watching the other day and when i tell you these people did not want to have anything to do with the redneck like hilly billy type of a thing yeah this this is so freaking deep y'all let's keep going so hey it's away by all means if that's what you need to do but it's not coming close to the problem of racism which is psychological huh. well i wonder what you do with this endless stream of black african americans in the u.s who have been killed by police often they've got off on appeal uh, nobody's kind of carried the can for this i mean you can think of so many examples of bullying and and so on, where people, I mean, people feel better if they can actually see people be punished. Yeah, so we can now move some, somewhere towards the psychology of racism. And certainly my way of looking at it is based on Sigmund Freud's uh, amazing work called Totem and Taboo. And 
There goes Bruno. If y'all know on my last podcast, he's going to keep us up all night, y'all. Bruno! In that work, Freud is essentially saying, it's a, it's a crude summary, what he says is that people need a totem pole around which they organise social life. They need some kind of sense that they belong to a group. Now, in primitive times, everybody, every hmm. culture had its own totem pole, as it were, mm-hmm. their own set of values, their own mm-hmm. practices, mm-hmm. their own way of doing things, getting married, um, working and organising society. What has happened is that with the increase of populations, those totem poles are now competing with each other and mm. they're not able to tolerate the differences that people have, whether it's skin colour, whether it's uh, immigration, they can't bear the difference. So what happens is that what is your totem pole starts to become a stick with which you beat other people Mm. up who are different and have a different totem pole. Mm. And of course, they will beat you back. So when (laughs) people complain to white people that you are not respecting our totem pole, you're not respecting our values, you're not respecting our history, white people will beat them back with their totem pole and say, sorry, you don't respect our history. Mm. You don't respect us. That's right. If you take um, George Floyd, who was killed by the police, had his breath removed from his body while somebody filmed it, so we know it, Uh, what you've got is, you've got the result is Black Lives Matter, where people at football matches are taking the knee, and um, you've got people who are saying, well, what's the point of all this? He was a villain anyway, you know, he was a troublemaker. I mean, why are we making such a I think she's asking the provocative questions. I think we've talked about that in the black community. I've said my pieces on it. Let's see what he has to say about it. Um, I've been on both sides of that fence. So let's go. That's about it. That's, that's quite a common view on the street, you know. Yes, indeed. And it is a common view on the street. And it is important to say that. And the discrediting of black men when they are filmed being murdered by a police person, it's an interesting response, isn't it, to come back and say, oh, but he did have a criminal record, so that makes it all okay to put your knee on somebody for nine minutes and kill them. Uh, sorry, it doesn't. But- and so, just so you're clear, and clear, in case it's the first time you're coming to me, my thing wasn't that it makes it okay. I think the conversations were um, yeah, to, um, to just kind of make it as succinct as possible um, is when it comes to black women, like we don't have that amount of support coming out and for us and we will go and defend and fight for them, but they won't do the same for us. So we just kind of sit it out. But I don't think anyone I've listened to up until now um, or anybody that I have listened to have said that he deserved it or it made anything. Another interesting word that I've been using is invalidating versus he used to discredit. So those are two different interesting things. Hold on one second. Bruno, I'm right here. Oh my gosh, let's go. We get to a really important point here. Black Lives Matter is a very US specific movement responding to the totem pole issues going on in the US. Now, in the US, racism is macroaggression. It is in the system. It is in the institutions. It is in a whole history of slavery, 
and it's in the whole history of lynching and exploiting black people, as well, by, uh, as, well as, by the way, um, the genocide of the native Indians. Now, when you mm -hmm. think about that as racist hate that has gone on and goes on, what's happened in the US is it's fed into the system. It feeds into the legal system. It feeds into economic systems. It feeds into housing policies where there, there is this process called redlining, where black people are not allowed to buy houses in white areas. Mm -hmm. That's going on today. Mm -hmm. So you can see from this that there's no point going on about, oh, well, you know, there was a history of slavery. That's not solving the psychological problem. What's going on is that people in the US are fighting a totem pole battle between who wins the system, who hmm. wins the legal systems, the economic systems. Mm -hmm. In the UK, it is absolutely different. And the way racism goes on psychologically in the UK is more about microaggressions. So if you take the examples of sport, they're kind of happening in locker rooms, they're happening in corridors, they're happening at work, they're happening if you unfortunately write a book about the empire and you're going to get trolled off your head with racist abuse because you dared to shame white people. But what else did you expect? Well, we'll come to sport in a minute. In fact, I'll just touch on one, I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, I don't know what your view of punishing somebody who wrote this is. Ebony Rainford Brent, now, she was the first black woman to play for an England cricket team. She's got an MBE. She's very accepted in the establishment of Britain. She's black. She's 37. So she gets a letter, opens it, and it says, white cricket culture is white culture, you racist bitch. Who invited you to my country? Go, bitch, go. White culture is wiping your ass with white toilet paper. We found you naked in Africa, Ebony. Naked, illiterate, huh. primitive. Yes, primitive, Ebony. Leave our country, bitch. Leave now. Go, go, today. And as she pointed out, she was born in South London and uh, <laughs> but apparently was found naked in Africa as a primitive. She said, I had some letters in my time, but that was right up there. Now, what are you going to do if you can even find the person that wrote that? Of course you need laws to stop racist hate. And there looks like that there is some kind of conflict um, in democracies between having the right to free speech, such as that person has hmm. allegedly a right to free speech, hmm. and targeted hate abuse, which is a very different level of speech. Now... We think we have free speech and that that person ha should have the right to speak their racist hate out at a person. But speech is not free. So, for example, if today, if you decided that you wanted to support Palestinian people and human rights there, you would be classed as anti-Semitic. So you are not free to support Palestine or speak for Palestine. Now, here we have racism again, okay? So racism is happening all the time. And every culture is racist. Every person mm. is racist. You and I, sitting across this table, are racist. So the person that wrote that to Ebony, you say it's a got a psychological root. So what's the, what psychological illness has that person got? That is, that is the backlash. That is the white backlash towards all of this Black Lives Matter movement, which actually doesn't hugely apply in the UK. By all means, uh, express solidarity with the movement, and that's fantastic. Um, but the history of racism in this country has a different complex, a complexion, if I can use that word. Hmm. And 
the way that it has come over and swept over the UK, almost as a fad, has created the white backlash. But guess what? It's created the white backlash in the US. So trying to say to these people, don't post your tweet, don't send hate mail, of course that should be stopped. Um, but and, and you can make laws against that, and you can say hate speech targeted at different ethnicities, white or black, yeah, should not be allowed. And that's, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill wrote a book on liberty, and he's a great libertarian, but one of the things he says is, you know, the, the, the two fundamentals of liberty, you are not allowed to incite people to hatred. There mm. is a limit to free speech. Mm. And of course, the other one is the destruction of property of people. Mm. Now, we fundamentally need that in democracies. Free speech does not mean that kind of abuse. So when you have targeted abuse, make a law, but you have not solved the problem. Do you mm. honestly think that if you punish that person with three years in jail or £50,000 fine, do you think you will come close to changing their racist mind? No, because they'll meet a load of other people in jail who think the same. So it's a psychological problem, and you can't address it through the law. Hmm. You have to contain it through the law, hmm. but racism is a psychological problem, and all races are hating each other. You know, we talked about <laughs> multicultural integration. Mm -hmm. Nobody has talked about multicultural hate because that is the fact of society. And mm. how can you solve a problem if you don't understand it? How can you come up with right answers when you haven't even got the right place of thinking, goodness me, See, we all hate each other. Hate, but I mean, mm. if you're somebody called Michael Vaughan, you'd think hate was a bit over the top, which I think I'd agree with, really. So the situation is in sport in the UK, you have Azim Rafiq, a British Asian cricket player, who took exception to some well, what would be described as joshing about him, and it goes on everywhere, but anyway, he took it so seriously, he took it to the Commons, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. He, he didn't like comments like, you lot sit over there by the toilets, which were allegedly made. Now, Michael Vaughan, I suggest, didn't do... If, if that remark was made, he denies it, he says he didn't say any of these things, and thankfully, he's actually been given some chance to work again, which I think is right, personally, and a lot of other people would. Because surely he's had chance to think it over as whether he's actually got, you know, if he did say anything and if he regrets it. But hate is a terribly strong word, and you can't apply it to someone who just has a go at somebody on a cricket pitch. Uh, of course, um, this, this raises a fantastic issue around what is banter and what is hate speech? Hmm. So if you take, for example, banter and joking about a Christmas party during a time of COVID, where hmm. apparently there was a party at number 10 Downing Street during a time when other people were not allowed to see people, their, their close loved ones dying in hospital. Hmm. Um, people were in lockdown. They couldn't see their families. And yet here were some people not just having a party at number 10, but they were joking about it. Now, isn't that a little bit of joshing? No, it's not. It's not funny because there were people dying. Hmm. And that's when banter suddenly becomes highly offensive and abuse, and it's resulted, you know, in a huge amount of turmoil and the loss of jobs um, within number 10. Now let's transplant that to racism. What's so funny about being told, you lot, sit over there by the toilets? Allegedly. Allegedly. Whoever said that, OK, it's not funny. Now, if somebody said that to white people, you lot, 
go over there and sit by the toilets. Do you honestly think that white people would simply sit there and say, oh, that's really funny, no. you're just joshing? You would feel offended. Yes, so here we come down to racist hate, that different groups all think that the other one is racist. And actually, they're all racist. Mm. Now, the other point about the Rafiq situation was that he didn't care whether Michael Vaughan worked or got a job, was blocked by the BBC or not. He was not interested in Vaughan's reputation. He only wanted one thing. Mate, I'm sorry. I mm. am sorry I affected your mental health. Mm. I didn't know that my years and years of abuse, along with all the, the rest mm. of us, okay, which has been documented because they are now being sacked, mm. was neglected by the Yorkshire Cricket Board, and so on. So all he wanted was an apology. Now, interestingly, of course, Rafiq Azim was, was then um, found to have made uh, a comment about Jews. Indeed. I was just going to come to that. Yeah. You can't... It's double standards. No, it isn't, because what he did is exactly what Michael Vaughan did not do and what white people don't do. Mm. He went up and apologised, but then talked to the Jewish community. He visited a synagogue. He let himself be interviewed by a right-wing uh, magazine, The Spectator, by an editor of the Jewish Chronicle. He was then not quite vilified for his apology, but it was highly problematic because apparently he was playing perfect cricket while he apologised. And that piece ended up with, well, I don't know if he's apologising. You make up your own mind because it could be possible that as a Jewish person, you are racist against Pakistani Muslims. Mm. And that's where we have to ask ourselves, is it possible for Jews to hate other races? Is it possible for Pakistanis to hate white people for what they keep doing in these microaggressions? So we've got to come out of this idea that it was just Michael Vaughan. It's just a white problem. It's not a white problem. The mixed marriages, for example, are incredibly contentious within communities. And couples who do that have to go through a huge amount of explaining to both sides of the family why you married somebody with a different colour skin. Hmm. Why you marry someone with a different culture. So we are all still in a state of multicultural racism. We are all racist. And if you don't understand that as a psychological problem, if you don't understand there's something mentally disordered about this that is to do with group well, psychology and yeah. group hate, you'll get nowhere. Well, I think that the, the people that <laughs> shriek at Marcus Rashford uh, for not scoring a goal, I mean, for it, this is a man, Marcus Rashford, who put himself out to make sure there's some really poor kids at half-term got fed so that their parents, they did have meals at school, otherwise they might not have been. I mean, he's done a hell of a lot for people, and yet when he doesn't score a goal, some people on the terraces decide they're going to have a real go. Alright, I'm falling asleep a little bit, so there's ten more minutes left on the video. I'll probably do my commentary on another podcast. Let's go. Why? Yeah, it wasn't a real go. It was racist abuse, as it was uh, has been for Raheem Sterling, um, Osaka, and back in the day, John Barnes, who was a football player for Liverpool, had um, bananas thrown at him. This is not banter. This is not um, just joking. It's, it's not understandable anger from the fans, OK? It is targeting the colour of somebody else's skin 
thinking that they are different to me. And actually, they're not. They're actually on your side. They're playing for England. Now, this is the psychological point, isn't it? Hmm. That it doesn't matter if you're playing for England. It doesn't matter if you're as white as white people. It doesn't matter if you're successful. What hmm. matters is the colour of your skin, which must mean you have a different totem pole to us. So we're dealing with group psychology. We're dealing with group hate. And if you don't get that, you won't get anywhere with racism. All right, so being the psychotherapist, you will tell us, I hope you're going to tell us, that all this comes from how we're brought up. It, it's a different level, because when you get into group psychology, it kind of gets away from what happened in the family, and it starts to move towards, and, and this is Freud's great work with Totem and Taboo, um, and also his second crucial work in this field, uh, which is called Group Psychology and the Ego. And what oh. Freud is saying is, look, I've done my stuff about the families and depression and hysteria and so on. We need to think something else about group hate and why groups want to hate each other, annihilate each other, abuse each other and feel this really mentally disordered compulsion to do that. <laughs> well, if we, I mean, if you look at South Africa, where they tried very hard after years of apartheid to sort it out, they decided to have a tribunal, Truth and Reconciliation, where... The guilty, in quotes, were made to account for themselves without punishment. The victims also had their say. And it was all supposed to be, isn't it all great afterwards? Well, actually, no, it's not. You can't have a sensible conversation on racism, people tell me, in South Africa. It's still just under the surface. And the fact that they've tried to cover it over with setting up uh, groups of people, in, whether you're a teacher or a cricket player, you, you know, you will have to have a balance of colour doesn't hasn't done the job. So the other thing they say is multi-generational. If you send them all to school together, they will in time come to accept each other and there'll be no racism, white and black and all colours. Is that going to work? There is a view in sociology studies that that is the trajectory of societies because um, the white population is, as all races, in fact, the black population and other populations are becoming extinct because there's so much mixed marriages, there, there are so many mixed marriages, there, there is so much racial integration actually going on, that historically, if you project this over time, there won't be a situation where we have purely black people and purely oh. white people. Um, oh. There'll be less and less and less. And what will be the majority will be mixed race people mm -hmm. that perhaps could work to a humanity. But you see, Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa, was, it really illustrates the point. It was an initiative from, I believe, Desmond Tutu. Mm. And it came out of a very spiritual uh, impulse from the Church of England, trying to get the concept of forgiveness as some way of healing the nation, healing the group, okay, healing the collective hate that had been going on. And it illustrates the point. So here you have Desmond Tutu. If you all have been with me for a while, you probably know what's kind of grinding my gears right here. But this whole concept of forgiveness, um, I'm pretty sure. And at this point, this is where we start to kind of go in circles. I've done podcasts on my thoughts on forgiveness. Why should the offended party be the one that has to forgive? I feel like that just strips other parties of the accountability. Matter of fact, um, in the podcast I did where we covered about the um, forgiveness and type of thing and maybe kind of even using the line, I'm not my ancestors. You forgiving someone without them at least going through the process of acknowledging that they hurt you and asking for forgiveness to me is useless. So, but let's see what else he has to say about this. 
What black people wanted to hear was, yes, we were vile, we were evil, we were murderous, and we abused you terribly, violently, and so on. Okay? Right. And see, and so then he's addressing it there too, because remember I said, to me, for, for I think that these are newer conversations, because maybe our ancestors would have been like, I forgive you, because that's the nice thing to do. I'm not saying that I am not capable of forgiving. I'm just saying like, I'm not going to freely willy just give it to you. You have to acknowledge that you did it and you have to apologize. You know, we are white and we did that to you and we are sorry. Something apparently that Michael Vaughan found incredibly hard to do and still keeps saying, I didn't say anything. What people want to hear is, Please stop with the lies. Can you just say sorry for the facts? Uh, now, truth and reconciliation went some way to doing that. But again, it illustrates the problem, Chrissy. It's It can't be solved with spirituality. Hmm. It isn't being solved with education. Hmm. It's a psychological disorder. And it needs to be understood as a mental illness. Well, because if you don't understand racism at that level, we won't think, get anywhere. I don't think the Chinese government is particularly keen on to go into long-term therapy to get over what they're doing to the Uyghurs, really. It isn't a case of long-term therapy. It's a case of applying psychotherapy to social issues. And that's something which certainly people like Andrew Samuels has been very politi politically active about. Um, and to, uh, to a high degree, uh, people like Susie Orbach, both of whom we've interviewed, have understood that you can't just keep psychotherapy for individuals. They saw this huge potential that actually society and social conflicts can be understood in, in psychothera psychotherapeutic terms. So if you get a situation where people start working with sociologists, with political scientists, but bringing in the psychological dimension, which none of them want to face. Hmm. They keep banging on about history. They keep banging on about the law needs to change. Hmm. They keep banging on about critical race theory and education. And all it generates is more and more hatred, more and more division, hmm. and more and more shaming on all sides. Hmm. Now, we have to find a different way of analysing the problem because our answers have failed. And what's the, the gap is clearly psychology. And by that, I mean specifically psychotherapeutic process. And Freud has outlined it. Carl Jung has got tons of work on the collective archetypes. But it only works if people accept they've got a problem. And I suspect that a great many people are going to watch this, uh, who we're going to meet over the next year or whatever. If you actually ask them, you know, do you feel a lot of hate to... A, to an opposite race, another race, they'd say, what are you talking about? You know, they wouldn't, they'd never have thought about it. Yes, and that there is a process where we all want to be white. We all want to be successful. <laughs> the black man wants to be white was one of the founding principles of uh, Frantz Fanon, um, who's hmm. a colonial critic. And black people can be more white than white people. Black people can be more successfully white than white people. I totally agree with it. We will have to do a separate podcast on this and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it was like black people can be more white than white people. <laughs> and, you know, some people don't like when um, some people and I, I, I get I pick up what he's putting down because some people um, uh, it depends, depends on the perception. And I think uh because i've heard some people say well if you're 
if some guy you're talking to says, I'm more black than you because I listen to rap music, it could be a red flag, right? But I think based on what he's talking about is kind of like our behaviors um, that transcend just like what we listen to, but our meet our ways of thinking and our um, patterns. Matter of fact, it's, you know, you could even could just even talk because he's talking about how men want to be white, uh, black men want to be white, white men. And we talk about how black men sometimes become the, the, they're the new white supremacists in terms of how they treat their own community and even the, the black women within the community. So I had to laugh at that. Even though I'm falling asleep, I am actively listening. So y'all let me know what you think. I don't think he's saying it to be offensive, but I could see where in other contexts some people um, use it in offensive terms or whatever, what have you. But let's go back a little bit. Okay, here we go. People, Black people can be more successfully white than white people. And that's highly aggravating, okay? Jewish people can be more successful than white Europeans. And this generates a lot of hate. Now, it isn't a case of saying, let's all rush everyone into therapy. What's needed is that social policy has to be defined and based on informed psychotherapeutic concepts. How is that that gonna happen? It has to start with psychotherapists finally getting out of their one-to-one, sitting in a chair setting, Mm -hmm. and applying their immense skills their fabulous trainings, and starting to think about social and political issues and actually having a voice. Because at the moment, all you're hearing is one one side hates the other. All you're hearing is shaming of white people, which then creates a backlash of shaming of the very minorities (laughs) who are trying to move on from that. Uh So psychotherapists, uh, I think the burden falls with psychotherapists. It doesn't lie with governments. It doesn't lie with society. We are doing nothing, and we have to find more articulation on racism as a psychological mental disorder Mm. rather than pretend that it's all in the political field and it's all about histories and it's all cultural. It isn't. It's a psychological disorder. And really, by now, we've got the literature. We should be getting together as psychotherapists around the world and tackling and trying to understand what answers can we give society. But at the moment, we haven't even asked the question, is racism psychological? And that's what I'm hoping we can do here. It's not historical. It's not legal. You won't solve it by culture wars. So the the problem really is with psychotherapists. It's not with uh, governments. It's not with law. The, the problem is that psychotherapists have failed society today. And they need to start thinking about racism as a mental disorder and as a psychological issue. Hmm. Well, you've certainly made a very strong case. And thank you very much for it, Previn. Thank you, Chrissy. <laughs> I think she um, she definitely tried to play devil's advocate. Um, no doubt in my mind that they kind of thought about what are some things she could say. And <laughs> obviously provocative. Um but yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to let you guys go. I promise you, I don't know if I'm going to be able to upload this right right now. I'll probably wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning and then upload it. But I'm pretty sure I'm going to title this like, um, I know for sure I wanted to, to title, put in the title free speech. Oh, I know what I want to title it. We are, we are all racist, free speech, 
and we need more psychotherapists and stuff like that because um he's coming from the context of like I said before and he says this in another interview he was in that um psychotherapists do do more of the one-on-one I think that he has a valid point maybe if we start to integrate the conversations that they have one-on-one with the collective that's where you're going to hear these types of conversations and um and put it into the way that we govern ourselves and stuff like that and so yeah i'm i'm i will react to this tomorrow cuz for one i'm sleepy and i'm probably sure i'll have time tomorrow to kind of think about it a little bit more but i i was kind of worried like oh my gosh is he going to say something offensive or out of touch or stuff like that but no i think he hit the nail on the head and i think even uh helped me a little bit understand how i relate to other people and how other people relate to me so we all learned something together y'all good night good morning bonjour <laughs> have an amazing one talk to you later bye